Oh, they can't hear that enough. Thank you. <laughs> Whether they want to hear me or not, I tell them they have to hear this. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's. I just I I love it. It's one of my favorites. Thank you. Um, why? <laughs> if you don't mind my asking. Why? Because, yeah. well, first of all, I love art, so I'm not an artist of that type. But I I love art. I've always have. And my parents used to take us to museums, and I would stare at the paintings. I would just, it would they would fascinate me. But mm-hmm. I didn't understand some of them. Mm-hmm. What you do is you make paintings make sense, but mm-hmm. you do it in such a sweet and entertaining <laughs> way that you don't feel like you're in a class. Was um, um, art history or something? Mm-hmm. Um, even though you're an art historian. Uh. Well, thank you. That's that's nice to hear. I don't think art historians um, get the best uh, rep when it comes to playing, um, telling these stories in ways that are really compelling. You know, people do talk a lot about the kinds of people you meet. Either. Either they loved their art history professor, but they just never went on with it because they didn't necessarily think that there was, like, a a real professional path for them. Um, Or they did take art history and they were bored. And it's it's funny. Nobody has, like, no opinion about art history. They, They either loved it and just, you know, chose not to pursue it, or they hated it and... Um, I, I get both kinds when uh, people talk about listening to the show, and uh, I, I appreciate both tremendously because I had both experiences. I had really great professors, and I had really boring ones, and it's really nice to be in the position to kind of pull out what I loved about teaching and try, or what I loved about learning, and try to you know impart that to people who might be on the fence. It's weird. I got my appreciation from art, like I said, from my parents, but also I got it from one of my history teachers because he would use art to illustrate stuff that he was talking about, and I loved history, and I loved my teacher. Um, He would use it to illustrate what he was talking about, Uh but it wasn't, it was in a way that was funny and entertaining, and Uh it, it pulled you in. Um, but but I, I'm always like that. I I also got um, music appreciation in my Glee class. My Glee teacher, you would think would be we'd just be talking about the the songs we're going to sing and blah blah blah. No no, we talked about Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms and their histories and that's how I learned about it. Was and it was junior high school and. I, it wasn't in a music appreciation class. It was in Glee Club. I mean, not Glee Club, uh-huh. Glee Class. <laughs> you know, I, I always walk into these things. <laughs> um, did you ever have anything like that happen, or is that just bizarre? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I think, you know, you never know where inspiration is going to come. It, it's all in a good teacher, and, you know, especially one who pulls from kind of interdisciplinary places. So... You know, being able to really not just learn about history, but see it, you know, see it through the eyes of the people who lived it. Like, what more can we ask when it comes to understanding our past? Mm-hmm. That's true. And the thing is, is that if you don't 
make it just dates and names. History is fascinating. Oh, absolutely. I actually, I I don't understand people who find history boring. Like, Mm-mm. the way that, you know, my husband uh, was a math major, and he doesn't understand why numbers scare me. Because to him, they always made so much sense. And to me, it's like, oh, math, science. Like, it was just not, <laughs> it was not where, you know, my, my skill set lay. But history, you know, there are a lot of people who find history really dull, and I'm just like... I don't get it. Like, it's it's the most interesting thing in the world. It's the most interesting way of really understanding, like, you know, the, the world, human experience, you know, all of these big, lofty ideas all are, you know, these small little details of, of lives lived that accumulate into huge historical moments. It's like, what's cooler than that, honestly? What's more interesting? Exactly. I mean... The more interesting parts are the ordinary people like me and you um, that are going through life and sort of walk into something that becomes history innocently. And I'm not talking about people that are treacherous and they're trying to change things and grab power and all that. I mean, people... Oh, they're interesting, too. They're interesting, too. I mean, they all started out as normal people (laughs) who... You know, like, I I, yeah, I don't think, I think what history actually tells us is that there is no such thing as, you know, or very rare, you know, a fundamentally good or evil person. I think that, you know, you look at the course of history and you look at the way that, you know, people in power get their power. And it's a lot of people, usually, that pave the way for these kinds of things to happen. And a lot of people who are tapping into a lot of kind of good and evil inside us all. Um, so I, I think that, that separating kind of, you know, separating out the names that we know from the names that we don't, um, you know, it's, it's not always that valuable. Like, I think that, I think that there are you know, just infinite ways to, to be human and, and create historical moments. I mean, I know what you mean. I know what you mean, that, you know, there's <laughs> obviously, like, you know, we don't have to talk about, like, terrible dictators. But, you know, that's that also is what I think makes studying history really interesting and kind of endlessly fascinating, is thinking about what people's experiences were living in their own moment without the hindsight of looking back from 2023, you know, without the hindsight of... <laughs> 2023 hindsight like it's it's helpful to always think of you know life being contemporary art being contemporary too that comes up a lot in the podcast that's true that's really true i mean look at people like nero or henry the eighth when they started they were the hope of the country they they were the golden boys uh-huh. uh they, they were not monsters yet that uh-huh. came later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, what you're saying is right there. I I think it's really interesting. One of the things that I love how you do is you put everything of a art piece into perspective. Is it, I mean, I know you're a writer, so is it because you're focusing in it as both a historian and as a writer, or how do you do that? Well, give me an example of, of what you mean. Like, give me an episode that maybe we can unpack together, my process. Okay. 
Um, well, like my favorite, Monet, when you were talking about the church. Oh, that's an old one. I know, it's one of my favorites. Well, it's my my favorite artist. And it was the first one I think I listened to. Um, So I've listened to your whole show. So I pick a show and I go, oh, my God, I've been binging. Okay, let me think. (laughs) Well, okay, so, so the question is, so we'll take that that Monet episode. It's uh, Monet's Rolling Cathedral series. Um, so the question of how do I put it in perspective? You mean like in its contemporary moment, or the perspective of like what it means to me? Because I can I, I talk about both. Well, as an audience member, uh-huh. you bring it to a. It's it's sort of you're bringing it perspective for me. Um, I don't know if that, that's why I'm asking. I'm, are you doing it for yourself too? Is, is it, you bring it to yourself and make it all clear and then you bring it to the, uh, display it for the audience in, in your writing? Or is it just for the audience because it's already clear to you and you don't need it to have it cleared? <laughs> oh, gosh, no. It is not clear to me when I walk into it. Um, you know, once upon a time, I think, and maybe even with Monet, because I, I focused on, on you know, 19th century modernism, and, you know, I, I studied a lot of Impressionism in school, so, you know, maybe I had a bit more of a background in that, but, you know, once my episode started to get out of the realm of things that I was able to kind of, <laughs> like, I won't say dash off, obviously, like, nothing, nothing in this show is dashed off, I, I wish I could more, Um but, uh, you know, I was originally doing episodes on stuff that I knew pretty well. And from there, it was like, it was more challenging and more interesting to pull up artists that I knew about or I knew of or sometimes even artists that I hadn't even heard of and create episodes about them. And so I am always learning. It's like there's me learning the facts that, I would need to impart in an episode. You know, you have to talk about Impressionism. If you're talking about Monet, you have to talk about, um, you know, the style and the subject matter, both of which were really revolutionary. And then there's how do I talk about why this artist matters in his or her own context, which is really where the argument comes in. You know, it's like it's like if we're going to talk about Monet and the Rouen Cathedral series, what I end up is kind of building every show around a, a thesis, you know, like a like a paper, like a term paper. Um, and the thesis really struck me that was really important here, obviously, because we're talking about Impressionism, was light. Mm-hmm. And especially because you have a couple different paintings, the MFA has a couple different paintings of the same subject matter. You know, uh, Monet painted the Rouen Cathedral I think over 30 times, and they happen to have two of those paintings, and they're of the same subject matter, but but they're very different paintings. The feeling that they evoke, and the light, and the time of day, and the way that the light reflects off of the stone, and the ephemeral clouds in the sky, I mean, both of them just reflect two different two very different things, even though it's the same subject. And so, of course, you have to talk about light. And so that's my hook. Um, So one is I learn it for the facts. Two is I try to build a thesis around it. And then three is I have to think 
in terms of audience. I have to think in terms of what the listener is going to take away. Um, you know, it's both revelatory. You know, the painting is what it means to me, and the painting is what it means to the listener. And I think that both of those are really important. Like, if, if I don't do one of them, it's not a successful episode. I think that both of them have to be really present. And I think that any good podcast has to have the listener um, as kind of your front of mind. It's like, it, you know, it's all well and good to put something out into the world because it's something that matters to you, to me. It's really important if you actually want people to listen or you want your listener to love about it what you love, you have to be able to convey it in a way that is going to put the listener first. And so I think that, you know, once I understand what about it both matters to history and matters to me, then I have to transform it into gold. You know, I have to make it appealing to a listener so that it can matter to them. Yeah, that you're very good at that, too. Um, especially, you. you know, something uh, I actually have talked to you via um, Messenger about <laughs> Instagram. Yeah, Instagram, about... Um, about how like abstract art is confusing to me, and yeah, when you, I, it's just I, I try to understand it, but I don't. But when you were talking about like Jackson Pollock, it actually was enlightening. It actually made it a little clearer. I still don't understand him, but. <sighs> But it gave me a little bit, oh, okay, so you follow each individual line. That makes sense. Um, It was like, oh, it was a little light bulb. I still don't understand it, but it was a little better. (laughs) I mean, you can't, like, I think that people get it in their minds. It's like I used to tell this to my students when, when they studied art theory. They were so scared that if they understood it, like if it started to make sense to them, that, that, clearly that meant that they still weren't getting it because it's theory and it's not supposed to make sense. And I think that people do that with abstract art too. And it's like, no, no, if you understand it, you understand it. That means that you've actually broken through. And, you know, theorists and abstract expressionists were not hugely um, helpful (laughs) in terms of taking the hand of the person who's going to be consuming their uh, product. And I are craft, and I think that that we need to not do this to ourselves by thinking that there's like a secret code here that we'll just never get, no matter how many times it's explained to us. You know, if you walk by a Pollock and you find yourself kind of moving your body and, and feeling kind of animated along with the strokes and the flings, you get it. Okay, that makes sense. It's like. I don't know if you're a fan of mysteries, but there is a pro episode where they were in a museum with abstract paintings and, and uh, sculptures, and Perot says to the lady he's with, well, what the abstract artist wants is for you to understand it from a different angle. So by the time you're through going through this museum, you'll be a different person. <laughs> I thought, I went, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, you know, that could be one way of looking at it. And maybe maybe you do find yourself a different person, but it's also okay if you don't. And you also (laughs) just see something that, you know, kind of makes your eye move in interesting directions or or is a color 
um, you know, kind of a relationship between colors that you hadn't seen before or a technique, and you just say, huh, that's cool. You know, someone once came up with that, and chances are one of the first made it into a museum. Yeah. Yeah, I I think Agatha Christie was just, she's a very sophisticated woman, and she was probably trying to explain it to a general audience in a way that they'd understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because um, you know everybody reads her books, so you're not you don't have to be highly educated to read Agatha Christie. So she knew what her audience was, but I, yeah. I but I thought it was interesting explanation of it. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be highly educated to enjoy a museum either, and I think that that's that gets lost in translation. And I hope that my podcast is a is a step in the direction of making people feel more com comfortable being in that space and kind of seeing it for what it is and not just what they are worried that it will be. So when I loved it as a child, that was good, right? <laughs> when you loved what? Going into an art museum and looking at art. Of course. <laughs> that was one of my favorite things. We would go well, every four or five months. Um, and I grew up in L.A., so there was a lot of really good museums. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but I I always wondered, you know, if, if you go to these museums and you get ideas about art and then you go to school and they say something different, are both things right? That is a really good question. Um, I, I can speak for myself, my own experience, and then also from what I've experienced in kind of in, you know, doing this work. For myself, I, when I was in school, don't think that I had enough of a background and enough confidence in my own convictions that I would walk up to an artwork and think, okay, it's this, and then there was the opportunity for school to contradict that. I found myself looking at something and then really wanting to know what art historians said about it in order to help shape the way that I saw it. Um, it's just the kind of kid I was. It was the kind of person I was. I'm the youngest in my family. I was very shaped by the people around me. <laughs> and so when it came to you know, really developing my own sense of taste and my own understanding of the world, I, I found that I needed help to really ascertain its value <laughs> and its and like understand it. Um, but I also think that that can be really um, like damaging if somebody is going to walk into a museum and feel like they need to be spoon-fed what an object is about, especially if they have an experience with it that has nothing to do with what the artist might have intended or what an art historian or curator has determined is. Um, you know, and I, I think that it can be really like, that is why artworks can be intimidating in a museum because you're worried that the experience that you're having with them isn't necessarily the quote-unquote right one. And, you know, who who is the gatekeeper of what the right experience is? Well, clearly, you know, the, the curators, the experts. And it's like that's, that's not true, especially with art, you know, especially with something that can arouse something very deep from inside you. And so I think it's really important to 
try, and I try this myself, it's hard to try to give yourself over to an artwork, really try to take notice of the first reactions that you have. And then if you're curious about it, you know, do some digging on it. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily, like knowing the context in which the object was created, knowing some biographical facts about the artist, that's all well and good. Like all that should do is reinforce your knowledge base, but that doesn't necessarily change your feelings. You know, it doesn't necessarily change the experience that you had when you saw that artwork. And if it was something that meant something to you, hold on to that and try not to let any kind of factual information take that in a direction that you didn't necessarily go in at first. That's actually really good advice. Um, because I've always been really open to art and theater and music and and acting and all this stuff. I love and books. I love that. That's I I I have a passion for it. But my parents never tried to make me feel the same way they did, and I think that was one of the reasons that I was really open to it. Uh Um, but. It's really funny. One of the museums we went to was the Getty, and they had really great Greco-Roman art. And what it did was open my mind to the Greeks and and the Greek gods and Greek theater. I mean, it just like was like a snowball. Um, does that make sense, or does that sound a little sure. strange? Sure. Cool. Keep going. <laughs> Um, so when I, um, got to school, uh, I mean, older, and I became a theater major, and I was also a writer, and I was going to, um, class and they started doing Greek plays, my God, as much as I like Shakespeare, I fell in love with Greek plays, and I always wondered if my experience going to the museums and seeing all those amazing, beautiful, lifelike statues opened me up for when I started doing Greek plays. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It's just one of those things that, to me, connected. Yeah. No, that's entirely possible. It doesn't hurt that the Greeks have incredible plays, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're so easy to read. It's, yeah. Because it's not on a dichometer, and, and it was, there's none of that other stuff that is with Shakespeare. You don't have to worry about finding the place to breathe and things like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they structure it in a very Western way in Greek plays, so it's a lot easier to perform. <laughs> Um, than Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare, but I'm just saying that Greek plays are just, it's like a, any other playwright when you read a Greek play. Uh-huh. And, and you can't say that for uh, all, I mean, Molière is hard. It's as hard as Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Of course. <laughs> but, um, but I love Greek plays. I love Greek mythology. Oh, me too. I think it's fascinating. And Okay, this is going to sound really bizarre. There's this book 
that my um, I, I fell in love with a, an old movie called Topper that was done in the 40s with Cary Grant and my my dad saw that I liked it he goes you know there's other books by Thorne Smith and he gave me a whole bunch of them um, because uh, there was a Topper TV series so they, uh, it became very popular Thorne Smith and one of them was called The Nightlife of the Gods and what it was was a, a professor came up with a ray that made marble turn human or made marble alive or made humans marble. Uh-huh. It's very funny. It's a funny book. But what he did was he went to a museum and he made all the gods alive. Uh-huh. And he and they wreak havoc in New York. Uh-huh. <laughs> but but I always I, I it's one of my favorite books. I always wish that they would have made it into a movie because it's so funny. But that my appreciation of that also came from my appreciation of Greek art because I understood it as soon as I read it. You yeah, know? Sure. So anyway. I imagine the uh the Juno episode of the Lonely Palette spoke to you. Oh yeah. That was fellow, uh Greek myth nerd. Yes, I loved it. That was one of my favorites. <laughs> Did you um, did you ever have something like that? I mean, it, something that to- things that are totally unconnected that really made a whole thing become alive for you like that. Um, I don't, I don't think I entirely understand what you mean. Like uh, the thing I was telling you about the um, the the art. And the Greek plays and the funny novel. Oh, but novel. is that disconnected? I don't think it is. I don't think that is disconnected. Um, you know, if you have a love for for a certain you know time period, then you know we were talking earlier about about you know interdisciplinary um, you know ways of of looking at the world. And so I think it makes complete sense that the plays of a period that are reflected in the art of the period. You know, a lot of those sculptures are acting out those plays. So it's not, you know, I mean, there's there's a real connection there, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. I didn't really think about it that way. I just thought it was weird. <laughs> I have a very strange mind, that's what I thought. <laughs> um, but I love, I love that. I love, I love different parts of art. I love... I love the uh, impressionist. I love the Renaissance. I love I love some modern. I don't love all modern. Um, uh, I, I, and I love I love statues. I I I think the talent of taking something and creating something so lifelike from something that was plaster of Paris or a rock or something. How amazing is that talent? Uh, yeah. Um, did you, when you started studying it, was there a part of art that you was your favorite? Did you, uh, did it grow from a favorite part of art to you that I want to be an art historian? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's it's funny when you study art history. 
very quickly you come to realize that it's about it's about movements and a, a much larger continuum than it is about any one individual artwork. And so uh, right away it became very clear that I was going to be a historian, not an artist, or like not, like the emphasis would be on history, not art. And the artwork would just ultimately be kind of a, like a byproduct of, of a historical moment. Not all art historians operate that way, but I did. And, um, you know, so when, when you have curators who are experts in understanding Degas because of the, the brush stroke, you know, because of the way that certain artists, um, you know, the way that what manifests inside the frame is so unique to that period like god bless them like that's that's great for them it was never that interesting to me <laughs> i was always a lot more interested in what was happening outside the frame um and so uh i ended up really focusing on modernism i was interested in the art that came out of periods that i was most interested in historically and so I was always very interested in 20th century history. I was very interested in, in European history. And so the combination meant that I found myself going back to World War II, German art, um, post-Holocaust representation, propaganda, you know, basically trying to understand why people do what they do. You know, like that's always been something that I was really interested in and that I had kind of, because you will never get an answer, um, you end up just looking at the same historical moments through so many different lenses and trying to say, like, you know, why did this human person make that human decision? Like, well, because we're human and we're irrational and, you know, there are a lot of complicating factors in, in most situations. And so, you know, looking at, uh, you know, German expressionism and how emotionally resonant that work is and then if you are say you know in the you know in the Nazi cabinet and you're trying to really win the hearts and minds of the masses what happens well you look at the art that is so meaningful to them and you try to harness that energy except completely subvert it and so you have the Nazi degenerate art exhibition which is you know no one painting it's a group of paintings that were deeply meaningful to people and so the the intent was to make people kind of laugh at it you know kind of take something that was so resonant and saying okay well I'm not going to be the one who's feeling something here I might as well turn it inside out and and you know let it let me you know wave it away um and so that is a historical moment but it's happening around art and it it's recognizing the power of art it's recognizing the power of art as propaganda which is also very you know propaganda is a really really human thing it, it completely depends on human response and how to get people riled up and again that's visual you know that's using visual culture in order to move the historical needle um, so I found myself really zooming in you know once I was in grad school it's like you couldn't get me away from from interwar German art like that's kind of where <laughs> where I lived um, and um, yeah I just uh, 
to me, it's impossible to really divorce the art and the history in terms of both what I loved to study and what I love to teach. I think that's I think that's beautiful. I really that's great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, we're coming to the end of the show. I just wanted to know, um, do you have anything you want to talk about, about your new season of The Lonely Palette? Well, I don't actually release episodes in terms of seasons. I, I really try to, you know, The Lonely Palette has always been what I've been able to do uh, as I lived my life <laughs> in other, <laughs> you know, in both professional and personal ways. And so... Um, I launched it when I was working full-time in finance, actually. Um, and then uh, I had a couple of kids, and I was doing it full-time freelance, but never full-time when you've got kids. Uh, and now I'm just trying to really kind of refresh it because I want it to be both, you know, I don't want it to fall off the map. There are many, many more podcasts now than there were when I started in 2016, which is basically uh, – an age ago, like an ice age ago and when it comes to podcasting. Um, but uh, I want it to, to just, like, I want to just do more. I want to get really excited to do it, and I don't want to feel too much writer's block, which I think every writer wrestles with. Um, and I just want to keep putting, you know, I want to keep producing for people like you, you know, people who are really interested in, in consuming it. Um, it's very easy when you do this work in isolation to forget that people are listening. And so thank you for, for reaching out and, you know, just reinforcing and, and validating uh, the value of the show. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. I, I honestly love it. it I, have, I listen to several podcasts, but there's a, a few that I, I – I want to listen to all the time, and yours is one of them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that makes my day. Yeah, I really love it. Um, uh, what can you give the information for the show? Like, uh, how do they hear it, and um, what's yeah, your sure. and your you know social media and stuff so people can Absolutely. say hi and. <laughs> Um, so the website is thelonelypalette.com, and that's where you can get all the episodes and any more information. It's where you can become a patron if you want to support the show. Um, and uh, you can get episodes anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search for The Lonely Palette, and uh, you'll see a little Mona Lisa with headphones on. Um, and then uh, I'm on Twitter at Lonely Palette and on Instagram at The Lonely Palette. And, uh, yeah, just, um, you know, take a listen. If you like what you hear, uh, say hi. And, and it's really good. You have my, my love of it. So I hope yeah. that that helps bring some people that are kind of shy about listening to it to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show. I know you're busy. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.